Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 61. Let your hustle be louder than your mouth. Mongo Wilder. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, my indie film hustlers, to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's show is sponsored by Full-Time Filmmaker. Now, Full-Time Filmmaker is easily one of the craziest online film schools I've ever seen. It has over 40 hours of stuff, and it is amazing. Whether you're just starting out or you've been a filmmaker for a long time, this course really covers a lot. It goes into all the equipment you should buy, the technical aspects of things, the creative aspects, as well as editing. So he has a full course on Premiere Pro, on Final Cut X, uh, and then also goes really deep into the business of how to make money, steps to making money, sources of revenue, how much you should charge, all of this kind of stuff. It's really about building a business as a filmmaker, shooting a lot of different projects and making a business so you can actually then go after making feature films, television series, or whatever else creatively you want you can actually make a living doing this. It's pretty amazing. So if you want to check out this course, head over to filmtrepreneur.com forward slash FTF. That's filmtrepreneur.com forward slash FTF. The show is also sponsored by my new book, Rise of the Filmtrepreneur, How to Turn Your Independent Film into a Money-Making Business. In it, I discuss how to actually create the filmtrepreneur model and how to make money with your film or films and do it again and again so you can actually build a successful career and business. So if you want to pre-order the book, head over to filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. Now, guys, today is our AFM episode, our American Film Market episode and... Today's guest is the managing partner of the AFM, Jonathan Wolf. Now, Jonathan was on the show a few years ago, but things have changed a lot in the film distribution business, as you guys well know. So I wanted to bring Jonathan back on the show to talk more about the new world of distribution, streaming services, OTTs, the impact of AVOD and SVOD in distribution, and how independent filmmakers can actually screen their films in front of hundreds of buyers at the AFM. So we go into a lot of things that we did not go over in our prior episode. 
So if you guys really want to get into what you can do at the AFM, which by the way, guys, the AFM is a very powerful film market. It is a place where over a billion dollars of business is done every year of buying and selling movies in production or finished product. It is still a very powerful force in the filmmaking distribution marketplace without question. And if you've never been, you should definitely go. It's an education to go there just to see how movies are bought and sold and and what people are looking for, really testing the marketplace. It's a really, really great education. And speaking of education, I might have mentioned this on a show before, but on Tuesday, November 12th, I will be moderating a panel at the AFM. I'm very honored to have been invited. It is a big honor to be invited to speak on the stage at AFM, and I am humbled to say the least. It will be November 12th, Tuesday at 2.30 p.m. The AFM also puts on an education conference, so there's tons of panels, tons of talks that go on throughout the market, which is really, really invaluable. If anything, it's worth it just to go for that alone. And, of course, I will be doing some sort of meetup with all of the tribe, including filmmakers that have had dealings with Distriber. We're going to sit down, we're going to talk, we're going to share ideas and notes and see how we can continue to uh, help that situation out. But we'll also just be, I'll be walking around. So if you're there, reach out to me. You can email me at ifhsubmissions at gmail.com and I'll see when we can get together. I'll be there most weekdays, not every weekday, but most weekdays. So it's going to be pretty amazing. But Without any further ado, let's get to today's guest, Jonathan Wolf from the American Film Market. I'd like to welcome back to the show, returning champion, Jonathan Wolf. How are you doing, sir? Great. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for coming back on the show to talk all things AFM. So before we get started, I know a lot of people might not even know what the AFM is. They haven't heard your, uh, your other, other interviews. So can you just explain to everybody what the AFM is in general? AFM is a film market. It's primarily where production and distribution companies license their films to uh, territorial buyers from around the world, where they find the, uh, the access to the marketplace. And it's also where producers and writers and those with packages come to this marketplace uh, to find production companies interested in participating uh, in that film. It's, it's a mecca of film business. Yeah, and that's that's a real big point here, business, <laughs> as opposed to, right. you know, as opposed to um, film festivals and, and things like that. What well, I wanted to ask you, you've you've come out publicly and said uh, that you know filmmakers really shouldn't submit to film festivals if they're trying to sell their movie. Why shouldn't filmmakers submit to film festivals if they're trying to actually make money with their film? Well, I think back up for a minute. We talked first about the difference between a market and a festival. Okay, and I think once we we talked earlier once. Festivals are cultural events for their community. Mm -hmm. A festival director is sort of like a museum curator bringing uh, works of art to the community for a short period of time that the community wouldn't otherwise get to see. Film markets are trade shows. This is where film is bought and sold and licensed and and financed and, and eventually gets into the marketplace. And what happens when you bring a film into a film festival that's never been seen before, um, you risk one reviews. Um, the decision of when a film should be reviewed is something that's strategic. It's made by the, those involved in marketing. Um, and sometimes it's the review is from a curated audience. If you have a horror film, you want to make sure that you don't have an audience of uh, over 70s at the Palm Springs Film Festival watching it at 8 o'clock or 10 o'clock in the morning before they've had their first mimosa. Um, you're not going to get a good review. 
Um, so you not only decide who, when, but you also decide who's going to be in the audience. When you, when you put a film in a festival, you lose control. You don't decide when it plays. As I said before, you don't decide who's in the audience. And then let's say in a festival you, you get an award, some notoriety, uh, uh, best actor, best something, and you're at a regional film festival. And then you start to use that buzz for promotion. The word buzz is something that we all know about, but we don't understand it so much in the wholesale side of the world. In the retail side, when there's buzz on a film, that buzz is built to a crescendo by a skilled marketing team that times that peak of buzz right to when the film is going to be released. On the business-to-business side, buzz also burns out over a period of time, so you have to decide when it's going to peak. If you're going to get peak buzz from being in a festival, you better be ready the day after the screening to capitalize on that. And what happens is someone uh, screens a film at a festival. There are no buyers. There's, there, are, there are no production companies there to acquire the film in the, in the audience. And a few months later, they start knocking on doors. They're going to companies looking for distribution. And they said, hey, we got a lot of buzz. We got a lot of feedback on this film. It was all positive, won an award. And the person who sees the film doesn't know why three months after the buzz, they're still being pitched. Were others in the audience and turned it down? Are they the last person that's ever seeing the film? To, to get a film sold, you want to create an auction environment. You want to create urgency. And this is usually done at a market. Now, there are a few festivals where business is done. There's some business done at Sundance, though more of the deals there are closed before the festival than after. We can talk about that later. There's some deals in Toronto for U.S. theatrical distribution and a couple others here and there. But for the most part, it's not where business is done. When you go to a film market and you say, here is a film that has never been seen at a festival before. We are premiering at the market. You get a full audience of buyers. Now, when I say a full audience, if you have 50 buyers in, in a screening at the AFM, you've got a huge audience. Our mm-hmm. average audience is 26 or 27. If you were at a festival and had 50 people, you'd be crying. Uh, but this is the difference between a market and a festival. It's all about the business. It's all about the licensing of film and ultimately getting as much dough for the producer as possible. Yeah, this uh, I really rail against this whole lottery ticket mentality that so many filmmakers have where their distribution plan is to submit to Sundance and and hope that they win the lottery. And right. as you as well as I know, you know, winning Sundance does help, but doesn't guarantee. Uh doesn't guarantee sales, doesn't guarantee the number that they're looking for and so on, but it does look, it does help. Getting into Sundance is obviously is a nice little thing, but that's such a rare lottery ticket thing where this is much more business oriented. This is more strategic in the way uh, you approach filmmaking as you kind of should, depending again on what kind of film it is. Now, and, and, and you know, I've been to AFM multiple times now. You know, there are certain kind of films that are sold at AFM rather than, you know, if the our art house film sold there, is that black and white French New Wave film that was shot on Absolutely. a DSLR? Absolutely. And it, okay. uh, uh, art, the art house films are, are sold mostly, a lot of them coming out of France okay. and Germany. You know, it's okay. called the American film market, but there's still films from about 30 or 40 countries okay. that are screened and sold at the market. And uh, uh, there seems to be uh, more art films, as we would describe them, coming out of Europe than there are of the U.S., partially because they get funding. See, when we look at how independent film is, is funded, there is equity if you're lucky. There is soft money if you're lucky, meaning tax, tax uh, rebates and, and um, uh, supports like that. There's um, pre-sales, 
meaning you've sold the film before it's made and gone to a bank and, and borrowed against it. There's different pieces you put, you put together like this. There's also some government fundings and grants. And in Europe, there's more access to grants, to the public funding. And this allows more creativity, frankly, and more risk-taking on behalf of, on, you know, of, the, of the director. Um, in the U.S., when you say, we have no money, we have to rely on the pre-sale market, we've got to sell that film before it's made, you've got to work within certain narrow genres where the buyer isn't worried about the risk of execution, whether it's horror, whether it's erotic thriller, action adventure. If you come up and say, I have a coming-of-age story about an American teenager, and I want you to buy the film before it's made, most buyers will say there's just too much risk in the execution. Right. But the similar kind of story could be made in France or Germany or Spain, where there are public supports um, um, for that. And so, yeah, the art house world is alive from a from a funding standpoint. They're still having trouble in some ways reaching the theatrical audience. We just don't seem to see enough of those films in theaters. Now, you kind of hinted in regards to some films at Sundance are sold before the festival even ever happens. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because oh, I think sure. it's some, I know what you mean, but I don't know that the audience does. Well, here, the lottery ticket is actually being accepted to Sundance because every distributor wants to see every film that's going into Sundance before Sundance. When you hear about a deal being done at Sundance, I promise you, with all the lawyers involved and the complexities of cutting deals, they didn't do it at two o'clock in the morning. They celebrated a deal that was already done after the screening. They went to dinner and said, we have a deal. And so what happens is, the distribution companies frantically want to know what films are in Sundance. And the producers, along with their PR team or whoever is assisting them, as soon as they get that Sundance submission acceptance, they've contacted every distributor they know. This is going to be in Sundance. Do you want to see it? Nobody says no to that kind of, of screening. And it's pretty easy. Set up a couple screenings in a mid-morning you know, in L.A. And, and everybody's seen it. So those deals are cut way in advance. Now, some may wait till the end. We're going to paper it, but we want to see the audience reaction. But really, for the most part, those are done. And the, and that kind of myth was kind of started in the early 90s in the uh, the Miramax, we won't use his name, but in the Miramax days <laughs> where, you know, C Steven Soderbergh literally showed um, in 89 Sex, Lies, and Videotape and deals were made by, you know, at a coffee table in, at, in Park City. And that's the thing where the myths came from, correct? Yeah, and I don't know on any specific film whether the deal was after the screening or the deal was three weeks before. Mm -hmm. But the, that kind of excitement about, you know, the champagne flowing at five o'clock in the morning and everybody thrilled. And it's like the white pearly staircase came down from the clouds. Uh, it's great. But then when we look at, at film markets like the AFM and the same thing at Cannes and Berlin, uh, we have dozens and dozens of producers with with packages ready to go, part of the financing. They need to sell certain countries to to wrap out to get the rest of the, the the dough to make the film, and they don't know if they have a green light coming into the FM, and they have one coming out, and they're down at the bar at the end of the market celebrating, not that they got into a festival, but they locked their funding, and there are dozens of films that come into the AFM without funding completed that walk out with it, and so each of these events is different. Festivals are very different from markets, and I'm just sort of highlighting one of those differences. Now, can you explain to people how films are actually sold at the AFM? Like, what is the process for people who are unfamiliar with the process, as best you can? 
Yeah, it's about as complicated as writing a screenplay. Um, they're, they're really, if we can break it into two pieces, there are films that haven't started shooting. What I mentioned before is as pre-sales, where the sales company, um, along with the producer, have got a viable enough package that they're ready to present it to buyers from around the world. Now, primarily the top 10 or 12 companies, countries, the largest, UK, uh, France, Germany, Australia, Japan, Korea, they're ready to present it. Now, when they're ready to present it, it means they've got a director, they've got the cast, clearly the, the screenplay is done because the finished screenplay becomes part of the contract that you're guaranteeing delivery of that screenplay with only minor, minor adjustments. And there may be other attributes to the package, possibly some funding. It's very difficult today to get 100% of your funding from pre-sales, but they've got enough of the package that they're ready to bring it to the market to pre-sell. And they're pre-selling for a variety of reasons, sometimes because they need the financing, sometimes because the investors want marketplace pre-acceptance. Uh, if they take it to the market and everybody goes thumbs down, the equity investor may say, it didn't work, let's all walk away and cut our losses. So I want to see a certain number of countries sold to not only mitigate risk, but also to know that the marketplace actually wants that particular film. And so that's one set of deals that happen. Then the other set is on finished films, where they were able to make the film before selling it, or maybe they only sold a handful of countries to wrap up the financing, and then they're bringing the finished film to the market um, to show it to uh, the territorial buyers. And, and so it's, it's constant pitching, it's constant selling. Those sales agents, I may have said this to you once before in one of our discussions, those sales companies are the best pitchers in the world. If you can imagine every 20 minutes you have a new meeting to pitch one of three or four or five films you're representing to someone who hasn't seen the film and it possibly hasn't even been made, and that's the way you make your living is pitching unmade films. And when we hear about a producer who hopes every two or three years to pitch a film and get it made, and then we talk about the sales agent that's pitching three or four films at a time, nonstop, every day, and that's what they do. They are the best in the world. What I what I, I remember so vividly of my first time at AFM, I'll never forget this movie. Uh, I've not seen it, but I never forgot it because it was so perfect, was uh, Steven Seagal versus Mike Tyson. And it was just... It was just a big a poster of it. And I'm not even sure if the movie was finished yet. It might have been a pre-sale situation. I don't know. But I saw that. I was like, this is, this is amazing. <laughs> the first time I went to Cannes, and sorry this dates me a little bit, but very early in my career, I saw a big sign on the Carlton Terrace. And all it was was two characters, a T and a two. It just was T2. T2. I think this ninth. 1990 or 91. Yeah, 91. And, yeah, something like that. Yeah. And that's all it was. And and Carol Coe was pre-selling Terminator 2. And that's all they did was just T2. And they sat under uh, the sign and took orders. Sometimes wow. that happens. Yeah, yeah. No, but with, with that said, what is the health of pre-sales nowadays? Because it isn't like the olden days where you could walk in and you could arguably fund your, almost your entire film with pre-sales. Is pre-sales as, as predominant as it, is, as it was years ago? Uh, again, it's sort of a two-part answer. Budgets are bifurcating. Budgets are either getting bigger or smaller. Uh, Ten years ago, you could have made a $3 million horror film, gone straight to Blu-ray, and eventually gotten your dough out of it. Now, if you make that film for more than a million, you're, you're in trouble. On the flip side, 
Um, I don't know if Monster could be made today. Um, that you really need to have bigger budgets and and bigger profile to get out there and reach a broad audience. So budgets are getting bigger and smaller. On the bigger budget side, pre-sale is a very, very important component of getting the film made. Ab- absolutely. In almost every case. And what's, side, and when, when you say bigger budget, can you can I give you a range? I would say in English language, um, 15 to 20 million and up. Okay. Um, uh, it starts when you're producing, and again, non-English language is different because the, the business models from Argentina to France are very, very different in terms of both their cost structure and guaranteed distribution in country. But if we're talking about uh, American and British films, it gets very difficult to produce between two or three million and 10 to 12 million. Do you, because as soon as you cross a certain number, you've, you've got to go out theatrically unless you're doing this, let's say, as a project for Netflix, where they have pre-bought the film, and essentially it's a Netflix uh, production. And we can talk about the the, uh, the platforms separately. But if we look at the at the markets, um, it's not easy to pre-sell a three hundred thousand dollar film. The buyer can look at that and simply say, "There are lots of them coming forward. I'm not risking my company by waiting for the film to be done." When you're a theatrical distributor and you come to the AFM and there's six or seven or eight $30 million films for sale and you walk home with none, you might have empty slots in your distribution schedule a year later. So you need certain films and you need to take the risk of, of acquiring them early. When you look at a $300,000 film, you're, it's almost exclusively for online platforms. You know as a, as a distributor you'll have enough content. So you prefer not to risk or go through the hassle of the pre-buy, you'll wait for the films to be done, see what they look like, and and then buy what you want. So this year, I think you just said uh, off air that we you're starting a new kind of program allowing filmmakers to screen their films directly at the AFM. Is that correct? Yes. You know, Cannes has done this for a while. We've somewhat uh, resisted, partially because of, of literate screening time, partially because we didn't want to mislead the producer. Um, the biggest mistake a producer can make is saying, I'm going to come to the AFM, screen my film, and then sell it myself to territorial buyers. Mm-hmm. It's like putting a sign in front of your house that says, for sale by owner. It is almost always a disaster. Producers don't know how to effect a full delivery. They don't know where the values are. Um, sales agents truly do add value. And they don't quite get the urgency of you can't sell China this year and then next year sell Argentina. You've got to get the world sold very quickly. Piracy and, and just global media uh, awareness uh, diminishes the value of film too quickly once it, it gets released. And so we were, I was concerned that producers would come in and try and do this themselves. And what we've seen over the last five to ten years is, is fortunately a greater sophistication in those who are making films and a greater understanding of where they fall in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the food chain, if you will. It used to be a producer would come to me and say, so let me understand this. All the buyers have offices, right? Because they simply have a script and they look at any production company as a buyer. But of course, the terms in our industry is a buyer is someone, uh, is a territorial dis- distributor coming to the AFM to acquire packages. We see the producers more sophisticated now and and are slowly, we've opened the gate, if you will, to allow them to screen. But the purpose of their screening is to reach the sales companies, is is to screen later in the market when the 300 or so sales companies, their business activity slows down a little bit, they can send someone to a screening. Now, sometimes it's for fun. 
frankly, it's a cast and crew and they just want to be there. Um, you know, half of the screenings in Cannes at the Cannes market are just producers saying I screened in Cannes. And they, they don't mind spending $1,000 to say I've got a Cannes screening. The AFM doesn't have the same brand because when you say Cannes, you don't necessarily differentiate between market and festival. Mm-hmm. And you're talking anyways. The market and festival clearly know how to differentiate, mm-hmm. but others may not. So we've opened this up. I think we'll have 15 or 20 films screening and, you know, we'll – We'll sort of take the temperature of the producers afterwards to see how it how it worked for them, to make sure they got the audience uh, or the return on their screening investment um, that that they wanted. But we did open up a few years ago. Now, screenings at the AFM are expensive. They're about $1,500 for a single screening at a time when between 20 and 28 other films will be screening at the same time. We've got 29 cinema auditoriums. We don't quite fill them all every two hours. There's a lot of competition. And the work that the producer would have is getting people into that room who are valuable prospects for them. But what we've been doing for a number of years, four or five years, is we have AFM On Demand, which is an online platform for those who have come to the market to see film both before and after the market. And we've allowed producers to screen on demand for a number of years. And more, 60 or 70 took advantage of that, I think, last year. That's only $400. And the advantage of that is it runs for about six months. Uh, you can define who sees your film. Let's say you only want sales companies or something like that. And it's, it's really, a, frankly, a better value unless um, you've got a big, expensive film. Uh, if you've got a $300,000 film that's headed straight to a, a platform, you shouldn't spend um, you know, uh, so much on a theatrical screen at the FM. You should put it on demand and tell the sales companies the week after the market, they can come see it. And you work the market by just going around to the offices, letting everybody know it's there and following up afterwards, encouraging them to go online. We just find it to be a, a better sales tool uh, for most producers. Now, I, I read also somewhere that, I think it's on your website, I might be mistaken, that filmmakers could kind of piggyback on other exhibitors um like you know if you if i if i call an exhibitor there and go hey can i screen through your exhibition pass that that is is that is a practice that is done if you feel like if because what is the actual process to get your film screened if you if i'm gonna i have i have my i have a film what do i do well if 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 it was last year or the years before this is what some producers did because only the sales companies, the exhibitors of the show could screen. This year, because anybody with a badge to the market can screen their film, they actually don't, and it's the, price, the cost is the same. They don't go through the exhibitors, and the exhibitor really doesn't want the hassle unless they're actually selling the film. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they just simply go online, they get a credential, and it says screen your film, and you click here and just follow the instructions. And there's a process, uh, and we don't make it difficult because we – you know, we want people to do it if it's right for them. Okay. All right, great. So then, the, so you would advise, I mean, is it a specific kind of genre you're looking at for those kind of films? I mean, I mean, obviously, historically, and please correct me, and you know much better than I do, but action adventure, erotic thrillers, uh, thrillers in general, um, and horror, and then the family films, like anything that has a dog saving Christmas will do very well. Um, and family films, those are kind of the big giant pillars and then there's of course faith based and other other genres as well well let me let me say that they were okay and the industry is moving quickly if we had this conversation six or seven years ago i'd say that that is the center of the market then you have the larger i mean look more than half of the academy award winners for best picture 
in the last 40 years have been licensed or screened at the AFM. So the AFM is about everything uh, from Sharknado and Toxic Avenger, um, you know, to Green Book. You know, it's just everything in between. Uh, but that middle tranche that you mentioned really defined what worked in the pre-sale marketplace in the middle budget, where the buyer who comes in is usually taking on a pre-buy two risks. One, did they guess right for what their audience wants? Uh, like like buying sweaters for, a, for um, um, you know, a department store. Did I pick the right color order too many? But the other risk they're taking is that the filmmakers will actually make the film they promised. Was it good? Was the acting right? Did, did the director do what they needed to? They're taking two risks. And as I mentioned before, there's more risk of execution on serious dramas or talky comedies and less risk of execution in, in specific genres like action, adventure, and horror and thriller. And so uh, producers who don't have a lot of equity or having problems raising money elsewhere and needed to rely on the pre-sale marketplace for most of their funding were forced just by the nature of the marketplace to stick with genres that they could pre-sell. If they could pre-sell Brokeback Mountain, if they could pre-sell Greenback, uh, a Green Book, you know, we'd have a lot more of those kinds of films. Um, but they're just too risky. The buyer wants to see the film first. So the genres you've mentioned are um, have slowly slowly melting a bit, or the budgets are getting so small that 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 the pre-sale isn't isn't a piece of it. Now, if you look at Expendables, I don't know what what which one obvious on is Expendables 44 or something, but but this is clearly, you, you just say it's Expendables, here's the cast, and I'll show you the script when the film is done. And, and it's bought. You don't care about the execution. You know it's got a wide berth, and they're going to execute within that, within a level the audience will accept. Come up with a talky drama, it's different. Mm -hmm. And so there's still some of that, but the budgets have either gone up or they've gone down. And have you seen, you know, I'm going to be doing a panel uh, at the AFM uh, about micro budget. And, you know, do you, have you seen the, I mean, the, as you were saying, they either have gotten really much more expensive or, or have come down, down, down. And I work with independent filmmakers on a daily basis. And I've seen budgets from $3,000 for a full feature that gets sold to streaming services and to- I want to meet that filmmaker. You, you, you can meet him right here. I made a movie for five- <laughs> I made my first feature for five thousand uh, dollars. I had a I had a beautiful cast of friends here in LA who were all big. It was a dramedy, and we got a licensing deal with Hulu as well as sold it uh, self distributed it as well. So it's doable, but yes, but so that you've seen those budgets, but then I see the budgets of three, four, five hundred thousand as well. So how how have you seen the budgets really change, and what is that sweet spot for certain movies to actually have success at the AFM? Boy, I'm only going to give you a partial answer to this because the people <laughs> who are on the front lines really know. Yeah. The fact is, first and foremost, if the film isn't going to resonate with its target audience, it doesn't matter how cheaply you made it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's That's all funny. about the audience. And, and if you're looking at the film business with the emphasis on the word business, the first thing you do is, is face your audience. Um, you know, I mentioned before buying sweaters for a, a department store. Um, if, if Bloomingdale's, the buyer, just happens to like green and puts a whole bunch of green sweaters on there and nobody else likes it, um, it didn't work. 
um, uh, those that succeed are facing the audience, understanding they want what they want. And, and I don't know specifically which genres, which budgets, you know, how things connect. And this is really where the filmmaker has much more skill than I do, or the sales company, in, in keeping their ear to the ground and understanding where the values are and just what the marketplace is, is responding to. And it's moving much more quickly now than it might have 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing I always tell people as well as filmmakers, like what was what was true like last month is no longer true today. I mean, we have, uh, and we're going to talk about streaming services and more, but now coming up in the new year, we've got four or five monster streaming services being brought out, Disney Plus and NBC Universal, all these things. How is that going to change the marketplace? How is, you know, it's everything is changing so rapidly. And I can imagine someone like you who's been, you know, working with the AFM. I mean, I remember the times where the AF, you know, when movies, you know, even just the industry was much slower. It took time for things to change. Now it's, it's changing almost on a monthly standpoint. How, you know, how do you, how are you seeing the industry change? How is it affecting and how is it affecting the AFM? Well, okay, we have about three or four hours for, uh, for this one. <laughs> of course. Uh, the streaming services are, are, having, are creating a tectonic shift in the industry, and everybody knows this. What I'm saying isn't new, but maybe I can add some interesting uh, uh, perspective. They're doing a few things. First of all, this is a renaissance period for actors, for writers, for everybody who works in production, from cinematographers to set designers. There are, there are more hours of film, both narrative and, and, and not, being made today than, than ever before. Everybody is working. That makes it an exciting time. It's also somewhat of a bubble. Um, uh, many of these streaming services are losing money. All of them are talking. I read today that, that, that Disney's going to be spending $15 million an episode on this show, $10 million an episode on that show. In, in the days of network television, when there are only three networks, even at today's dollars, two million an episode would have been a lot to reach 30 million people a night. Now they're spending huge amounts of money. And, and I'll talk for a minute about why that can actually work for them. But it still is a bit of a bubble because they're all going to be losing money for a while. And eventually um, some, some common sense will come in, either shareholder driven or marketplace, and production will pull back a bit. Uh, but in the meantime, it's creating a renaissance environment for everyone except producers. And here's why. If you are a motion picture producer and your goal is to build a library and you know, actors, writers, uh, uh, directors, they get residuals. Their film plays forever. They've got a participation in that you know, for a long period of time to cover the lean years or the lean months. Producers don't. When you go to a platform like Netflix, um, they write a check. They buy you out. You see nothing. It is work for hire for you beyond that. Um, now, Netflix will say, due to their credit, we're going to pay that producer more than the average film might earn. Not blockbuster, but not losing money or, you know, uh, uh, as well. We're going to assume it does sort of okay, and that's what, what they're going to get paid. And it's going to be better than most. But they have no back end. They have no participation. Now they're just told, good luck. Go find something else. We're not providing development funding. We're not, you know, paying your rent for your home while you're trying to find the next next package. Where a producer who can build a company through a library really um, has a way to help fund future film. And the big question mark for me is, where are those creators going to find those new exciting ideas? The creative process works best in small pockets. 
This is why even the studios, when they're producing, uh, you know, 10, 12 pictures a year, one a month is about all you can do without creating another studio and another set of decision makers. It's why the music labels have offices all around the world, not because the music is different in Nashville versus Seattle, but you can only just put out, there's only so much creativity that can come out of one group. And what's happening now is they're slowly strangling those who fund and take the risk, the entrepreneurs. It is the, it is, it is slowly driving the entrepreneurs to extinction um, uh, because these are the people who take risks. And this is the part, it's not going to happen in the near term. A lot of those entrepreneurs are, are happy getting their fees from Netflix. But I know multiple people who have had series at Netflix, for example, and they've done the first year. And Netflix says the only way we go forward with the second year is if we own it. We're buying you out. You have no participation or there's no second year. Um, it's all about owning the copyright. We've seen that some of the, uh, I think Disney is slowly moving towards this, um, mm -hmm. not having to deal with the profit participation definition, but rewarding based on certain milestones. Um, uh, this is worrisome for the producer. And I'm not trying to wave a big red flag and maybe I'll be surprised and the marketplace or the creative producers will, uh, um, find a different model that, that keeps them healthy. But that's what worries me. The 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 interesting the interesting thing about Netflix because obviously Netflix was the 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 catalyst of all this they they're the first streaming service they're the ones that really kind of changed basically the way business is done in Hollywood at this point the, I always I always say that the difference between them and like someone like Disney Plus is that Disney Plus or Disney is a very diversified company. Netflix is not their entire multiple re the only revenue stream that they have the majority of it, other than a few t-shirts for Stranger Things that they might sell, is subscriptions. So Disney can take that hit and can lose money on Disney Plus for years uh, because they have so many other ancillary product lines and things, and they'll make more money on the t-shirts off of those shows, that $50 million an episode show, than they will off the show itself. So they have a different business model. I, I agree with you. I think there is a bubble. I think sooner or later, there's going to be one of these giants that's just going to it's just going to pop. It's just going to fall. Well, let me um, let me add a, a perspective to this. First of all, Disney has said by in 2020 they're going to lose about four billion dollars in revenue that they would have otherwise collected had they not started Disney Plus. So they they have to move quickly and they have to scale quickly and they likely will. They've got the only brand. Um, Disney is a brand. Warner Brothers is not a brand. Um, uh, nobody says I can't wait to go see a Warner Brothers film, a right. Pixar film, a Disney film, um, a Lucas film. They managed, right. yes, Marvel. They've managed. They understand that brands actually uh, sell. Just like paying Tom Cruise a big number to be in a film because because he sells, he can drive tickets. Those brands sell. The other brands, you don't rush off to a Paramount film. But there's something that Netflix understands that magazine publishers have understood for almost a century about the subscription model. And that is, with the magazines, um, the average consumer would retain their subscription if there were two sections in the publication that they wanted to get every week or every month, however often it came out. Not for the whole book, but for two sections. If there are two parts of that that you wanted to see, usually the subscription was low enough that you would always retain it because you didn't want to do that. Netflix has followed that exact model 
which is they want to have just enough of what you want, what I want, and what every single person around the world wants to say, yes, for my $10 a month, I don't want to move, lose that slice. Adam Sandler gets a four-picture deal, and a lot of people on Hollywood roll their eyes and laugh. <laughs> Netflix knows exactly what they're doing. There's a, an audience for everything and their goal. They're not going to buy every doc, but they're going to buy enough doc that if docs are important to you, you will never give up your Netflix subscription. And so it doesn't matter that Netflix doesn't have the Disney brand because they are doing something different. Disney is saying, here's ESPN, here's Lucas, here's, here's Marvel, here's our various pieces of content, and we think that most of the public wants at least one of them. Netflix is much broader in the sense of Disney Plus isn't going out with 100 docs every year. Netflix would be. And so they're taking the big book, 300-page magazine uh, publisher's approach, which is we're going to have just enough of everything. Now, they also know that that it's what's new that keeps people engaged as well. Very few of their series go more than two years, partially, partially because the costs go up, partially because they know they don't lose subscribers when they cancel series um, one day at a time. You know, yeah, great uh, show. I love that show. Outcry. Outcry. Didn't matter. Two years, they're done. You know, um, uh, They'll go on and on. But if they have the next new thing, it gives them something to market to drive new subscriptions. Their churn rate is low. And it's gonna be interesting when we watch, you know, um, uh, a company owned by AT&T that's used to, in its cell phone, uh, uh, used to like a one and a half percent churn per, per month, an 18 to 20% churn per year. If you had that at HBO, if you had that at Netflix, they'd be doomed. And so it's gonna be interesting to see how those those cultures um, you work with each other. But I wouldn't sell Netflix short. Now, I don't mean you should go buy the stock because I have no clue where values are and something like that. But those who say Netflix are, uh, is losing all of its content and nobody will want them anymore, they're missing the subscription model and really what is at the core of it that, that Netflix does understand. Now, I mean, obviously, I remember last year when I was walking the halls, all I kept hearing was this, this term OTT. OTT, 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 streaming. It's everywhere. It is just, it's just rampant. It's like a virus that has infiltrated the AFM. Everyone's talking about it. But yet a lot of people aren't figuring out, like you were saying, how to make money with it. Because DVDs was, like you, like you said, you made a $3 million horror movie, you threw it up on DVD and Blu-ray, you made your money back. It was just the market. Streaming is not like that. The, the profit margins aren't as, as big there. How... And there isn't the, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. There isn't the competition. See, if you were selling a Blu-ray and you were going, looking at, and it was an action adventure and you were looking at Japan, there might be six, eight, 10, 15 distributors who you could show it to. What's happened, and this is what I think a lot of the creative industry misses, is the growth of the platforms has really been about consolidation and consolidation of channels to the consumer, and consolidation of potential buyers. Now who do you go to? Um, when, when the Blu-ray player, Blu-ray, excuse me, buyers are gone, and you look at a streaming platform, and the number one streaming platform is Netflix, and there are two others, and that's it, in a country. Suddenly you don't have the, the ability to create an auction for your film. Suddenly if three companies aren't interested, you're just out of luck. 
Now maybe you go to an AVOD platform and hope you can, you know, uh, get a little bit of dough as, as mm-hmm. there are ads playing against, against your film. But the scary part for the independent filmmaker is the consolidation that's happening. And while people would look at the AFM 10 years ago, 15 years ago and say, who are all these people there? They're frankly the ones that were funding um, the thousands of independent films that were made because they, were, they knew how to find their audience. And what I'm hoping for, uh, and we're doing a session at the AFM called The Rise of AVOD. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're hoping for is that they're actually become what I'll loosely call independent platforms. When we push aside Netflix and Disney and Peacock and some of the others, who is out there saying we don't need 50 million subscribers, we need 5 million. And we're going to pick up the films that others don't want. And we have a marketplace. And I think ultimately what we'll start to see is a slow growth of independent platforms. And what I'm most hoping for is that some technology provider, maybe it's Apple, maybe it's someone else, comes up with the over the top app, which allows you to say, here are my subscriptions that I have. I have Disney Plus, I have Netflix, whatever it is, and it organizes everything for you in one place. Uh, The consumer needs simplicity. We have so many examples of that. Um, You know, we we all listen to music digitally, but a CD has much better quality. We'd all prefer to stream films, but a Blu-ray has much better quality. We actually prefer convenience, and we're willing to give up some things for that convenience. It's, and somewhere there needs to be that, that app on your, t- on your television that allows you to access everything you have rights to in one, in one spot. And the reason I mention this is then that small app, that small distributor has a place there, and it can be found along with everything else. Which, which is funny. You say that these small niche kind of um, over-the-top or streaming series services are going to start popping up. I myself have a streaming service that's dedicated to filmmakers and screenwriters, and it shows movies about screenwriting and filmmaking. It shows, you know, other kind of content that's aimed at that demographic, and it's a full-blown streaming. You know, Apple TV, everything. And I've I keep saying the same thing. Is like, you know, one of the main core things I teach is to filmmakers is to understand your audience and to niche down, not to go broad. They can't compete with a studio budget. They can't compete with 20, you know, $20 million in PNA, but they can make, I always say, make the vegan chef movie, you know, make that movie that is a romantic comedy about a vegan chef who meets a meat eater at a barbecue comp- competition. And you make that movie for $150,000. You, you, you know, you put a couple stars in it or you couple, you put, but you can sell that, that movie to that niche audience, would you agree that not only is the, the niching down of your projects a beneficial thing at selling at the AFM, but also for these companies and these streaming services like Cozy Flicks, is for example, or um, what's that? There's a faith-based one as well, something else, Flicks. You know that they're they're literally like, I don't need to go after everybody. I'm just going to go after my niche audience. And that's important. If you compare it to the real estate industry, some people big build big mansions in Beverly Hills, right. and some build you know, apartments and one bedroom condos. And, but they, when they start production, they start building, they understand the marketplace. They know how to reach the marketplace uh, before they start. Too often we find with the creative producer, they make what's in their head and then afterwards say, now what do I do with it? You mean most, Uh, you mean most filmmakers basically is what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) And this is one of the things that differentiates the studios. The studios are distribution companies. 
They only produce so they can have something to distribute. Sort of like the oil companies. They're all refiners. If you said to ExxonMobil that, that we'll give you a steady supply of crude from now till eternity, you don't have to explore, they'd be cheering. Great. We're just going to keep filling our refineries. The only reason they do that is so they can continue to refine and retail. If you said to Disney, we're just going to feed you, you know, a Star Wars every month forever, they'd shut down production because it's all about it's all about the distribution. And so the independent and I'm exaggerating, of course, of but, course. but the, ind- the independent producer frequently is focused on the production side. You know, there are two kinds for me. There are two kinds of companies, film companies. There are distributors. There are, excuse me. There are companies that produce so they can continue to distribute. And they're companies that distribute so they can continue to produce. And those that distribute only so that they can continue to produce are usually following the, the, the owner, the principal's vision of production. And in very few cases do they succeed long term. Um, most production companies just don't have a, 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 a long lifespan like the studios. And it's not because they aren't big. It's because their ultimate mission was still to produce. Now, do you have any uh, tips on how to work the AFM for a filmmaker? If, you, if you're trying to either do a pre-sale or sell a project, what do you have to walk in? Or how do you walk in? Or if you have a finished film, what you should do as far as just literally working the, working the AFM? The first thing to do is to start ahead. The worst experiences are someone to pick up the credential, walk in the door and say, okay, now what do I do? There is no follow the dots. There is no roadmap. It isn't curated for you. This is a jungle. And so you have to be prepared for it. You have to understand what your mission is. And there are a few. I even start at the, the producer or writer who doesn't have a script, has nothing. Their reason for walking the market, and I'm not suggesting that all should do this, but I've met many who have. The reason for walking the market is to know what's working in the marketplace, to be able to go door to door. You can walk in the office of Lionsgate. Then you walk in the office of every single company that's there. The door is open. They may or may not have time for you at that moment, but you can absolutely see what's coming. You can see what budgets they work in. And it's so refreshing when someone walks into one of these companies, instead of pitching, turns around and says, what are you working on? What budget ranges are you in? What language? What genre? What works? What actually? You know, just asking questions. It's a wealth of information. These companies all face the marketplace. The first and foremost is to make sure that any minute you have the AFM is spent learning. And frequently going door to door and understanding what companies do, because they're, you know, ultimately you want to make a film that sells, not a film that you show to family and friends and then pull it out once a year to show it again. Um, <laughs> and so, then the next group, um, uh, so look, look at the, sort of the process is a producer that has a package. Um, writers with scripts have a challenge. Um, they can find out who's interested in what, but nobody's going to read a script in a market. Uh, so pitching a script at a market, just going door to door and saying, buy my script, um, you know, it doesn't work. For a producer with that script who has some elements to it, may have some equity, may have somebody attached, um, you know, may know where they're going to shoot with some soft money com- coming forward. They have even, even just the embryo of a package beyond a script. They have an opportunity to create interest because the companies there are constantly looking for new films. And they have to do their homework in advance, though. You know, one of the things um, uh, all salesmen know is that they want to qualify their prospect. The last thing they want to do is waste their time pitching somebody who isn't qualified. You know, you're pitching a French company, uh, an English language film, and they only make French language films. 
<laughs> um, you, you're pitching an art film to a company that only handles you know certain genres. The key is to do the homework in advance and actually know who you want to meet with. And there are lots of resources on our site. Um, you can, uh, every every uh, sales company has a page on our companion website, the film catalog, which has their profile, shows all the films they've handled, and shows where all their ex- who all their executives are, so you know who to write to to set up a meeting. And the other important thing that, again, the professional salesman knows is the purpose of every contact, whether that contact is an email, a phone call, or a meeting, is get to the next contact. Just get to the next step in baby steps. The purpose of the email is maybe to get a phone call. The purpose of the phone call is just to get a 10-minute meeting during a busy market. The purpose of the 10-minute meeting is then to get the follow-up meeting or to have them read the script. It's, it's all done in little steps. And, and, and those who try and overreach usually just get the door shut because people don't have time for the commitment they're asking for. Um, and so it's asking for very little. And being happy with that very little as you move to the next step. So those with, with packages or, or loose packages, planning ahead, contacting the companies, um, trying to set up meetings, um, finding out who's head of acquisitions. Those with finished films, um, the goal is to get the film seen. Um, now, one way could be screening at the market. Another way could be having it on uh, AFM online. In those cases... You know, we we frequently recommend that someone put together a three to five minute reel. And when I say that, it's not a consumer edited trailer. As a filmmaker, you're not telling the distributor how he or she should market to the consumer. You're not showing how you would sell the movie. It's taking, I don't know, selected scenes, half a dozen scenes, which show the best of the film. You're already either sending a script and they know the story or the synopsis. You don't have to show beginning, middle and end. Here are five great scenes that show the skill of the actor, the skill of the director, uh, the production values, whatever shows the film in its best light. You put it on a password-protected site, and you basically say, here's here's a synopsis, here's some selected scenes, please take a look for three minutes, click here, love to meet with you at the market, it's a finished film. Suddenly, finished film has less risk for the person you're pitching because you're not asking for dough, you're asking for their time. You're asking them simply to look at the film and see if it's a good fit for them. So the, the pitch is, is, is very, very different. And you wouldn't suggest a screenwriter walking in with a screenplay going, hey, guys, I've got a movie. Can you fund me? No. <laughs> but there are more than 1,000 producers at the AFM. Mm-hmm. Most of them actually aren't in offices. They're doing the things that we've just talked about. So if you're a writer and just from a networking standpoint, in the restaurants, at the receptions, in the hallways – uh, wherever it is, um, in the filmmaker's lounge, just talking to people. What do you do? Well, I'm a producer. I, you know, mostly stick with horror. I'm a horror writer and I just finished three scripts. You know, that kind of connection, somebody that, that doesn't have a big enough shingle that they would have known to pitch them or write to them in, in advance, finding partners. This is a collaborative art form. If you're, if you played in the grunge world, you know, a decade and a half ago, you were in Seattle, you had to go there. You know, if, if, you know, you have to go, if you're playing country music, you need to be in Nashville. Um, If you're an independent film and you want to connect and, and find collaborators, you need to be at major events, whether it's here, it could be at Sundance, you know, it could be at other events, but you have to get out and, and, and connect. Um, and what any other final uh, do's and don'ts that you would recommend for the AFM in, in the current? Because I know before you could, 
I know it's been slowly kind of being closed off before you could walk the pool. Now the pool's <laughs> closed off. Before you should be able to walk the lobby without a pass. Now that's been right. closed off. <laughs> so for people not, who are not aware, what are the do's and don'ts now uh, that you can recommend for, for, for people coming to the first time at AFM? Well, those who haven't been there, the, the, low, the AFM is held in the Low Santa Monica Beach Hotel. It's a 350-room hotel. We close the hotel for a week and a half. You can't walk in the hotel, as you've said. Um, uh, until after sundown, usually around 6.30. Now, I can't walk in the hotel without a badge, but it's no different than going to any other market, whether it's the hey. Palais in Cannes or the Martin Grovesbau in, in Berlin. You can't walk in the building without a badge. We used to keep the lobby open, but as the market's grown, we've found people who've paid dearly to travel from around the world, flown for 10 hours, gone through the indignities of LAX, and then they're standing <laughs> in the lobby because – you know, a handful of actors came over with a bottle of water and an Uber and are occupying all the couches. And it just, my empathy was for the person who traveled at great expense, who came to the market, who have a business mission, rather than locals who are already here in Hollywood. They're already here. They can already go knocking on the door. They can meet people everywhere. My, my empathy was for those who traveled. And so we just decided we needed to restrict access to the hotel to those who have a, a credential. And so if you're coming to the market, first and foremost, uh, do your homework, you know, decide who it is you want to meet with. This is an appointment show. Half the connections are made by appointments for those that are in the offices. Don't pitch somebody without qualifying them. My best example is if you ever walked onto a car dealer's lot, the salesman comes out, you know, uh, into the lot and starts right at you. I have the perfect car for you. It's red. It's a four-door. It's a, it's a stick shift. It gets low mileage. It's absolutely the best car for you without ever asking who you are, what you're interested in, when's your budget, when do you tend to buy. That's the difference between someone who doesn't pitch for a living and someone who does. You qualify your prospect because the most valuable thing you have at the FM is your time. Um, invariably, I hear from people who are really angry because they pitched someone for five minutes, then asked that person, what are you doing? They said, I'm the intern. I'm here for a week taking messages and booking meetings. And they felt it was the intern's responsibility to interrupt their pitch right. and say, you shouldn't be pitching me. The blame game. You're, pit, you're a professional salesman. You know, sales is the highest paid profession in the world, mm -hmm. more, than, more than lawyers and, and, and doctors. But it's it's business to business sales that most of us never experience and definitely don't know how to do. And this is what selling film is. It's totally different than selling sweaters at Bloomingdale's. Um, and but we think of it. Many people think of it when they're pitching a film. I'm pitching it like a sweater. This fits on you. It looks great on you. Here's a big smile. Don't you want it? You know, <laughs> the business to business salesperson is explaining to the buyer how they will make money on the film not how good the film is. I was once walking with a producer whose name I guess I won't say in case he gets pissed off. We were walking in Cannes, it was a number of years ago, I said, what are you working on now? And he said, oh, just another piece of shit with Jean-Claude, meaning Jean-Claude Van Damme. He didn't care, he was gonna make money. Um, um, the, the distributors, the production companies, that what they're most interested in is how this is gonna be a profitable experience for them. First and foremost, the film being good is secondary. It's it's business. It is it's it's about the business side of the business that you, you, you most filmmakers think about the show only and never think about the business. If I can use one analogy, if if you're um, uh, if you're a painter, um, you and you do this for a living, professional. You visit art galleries. 
you find out what are people buying? What do they like? Um, I could paint anything, but I'd rather paint something that people actually want to buy. If I don't, I'm, it's a hobby. And what you have to separate is, is this my hobby and my passion, or is this what I'm doing for business? If I'm successful at it at a business standpoint, I'm going to have lots of time and resources for my hobby. But if I only pursue my hobby, ultimately, I'm going to be having to find a different day job. And professional painters know this. Filmmakers uh, need to follow the same, the same path. Now, where can people go to sign up for Badge or any, you know, any information about the AFM? Sure. AmericanFilmMarket.com. It's easy enough. The, re- the information is there. We have a page, How to Work the AFM. And if you just Google How to Work the AFM, uh, that, that page will pop up. It'll have a lot of the things that, that I've just uh, talked about. Very good. Jonathan, thank you so much um, for being on the show again and dropping appreciate knowledge, bo- dropping knowledge bombs on our, on our tribe today. So I appreciate it. And I'll definitely see you. And I'll definitely see you at the AFM. Looking forward to it. Thanks for moderating that session. I'm looking forward to it. I want to thank Jonathan for coming on the show and dropping those knowledge bombs on the tribe today. If you haven't been to the AFM and you are in California or you can get here, it is worth your time going, guys. It is an education, to say the least. If you want to get links to anything we talked about in this episode, including Jonathan's prior interview, head over to IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash 361 for the show notes. And before we go, guys, I want to ask everybody for a favor. If you have read Shooting for the Mob and you enjoyed Shooting for the Mob, please take five minutes, three minutes out of your day, go to Amazon and leave a review for the book. It really, really helps me out a lot. It helps out with the ranking of the book, getting more people to read that book. It really does help a lot. So please head over to shootingforthemob.com and click on Amazon and you'll be able to go right there and leave a review. So I truly appreciate it. If you haven't read Shooting for the Mob, my God, what are you waiting for? It is an amazing book. has 29, I think, rating right now, five-star ratings already. And it was already a Amazon bestseller. You know, guys, don't hate the player, hate the game. <laughs> always got to be hustling. You know how it is. Thank you guys for listening. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. I hope to see you at the AFM. And I'll speak to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia.